Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 7 through 12 tonight in our second section on our roadmap here. And this whole section deals with, it's a historical narrative. So we're jumping out of poetry into narrative for a brief section in chapters 7 and 8. And it's linked to the Assyrian crisis. And it ends with a song of thanksgiving in chapter 12. We may not actually get to chapters 11 or 12, uh, and chapter 11 is kind of important, so I may touch on that at the beginning of next class if we don't get there. If you recall from last week, we covered the first six chapters, and that was kind of the stage setter of the book of Isaiah, of the depravity that Judah had fallen into, and the judgment that would come upon them if they don't turn. And then there were these two highlights in Uh, chapter 2 about the mountain of the house of the Lord and how all Gentiles, all the nations would flow into that. And that would come about in the last days. And then in chapter 4 about the branch, um, starting with the remnant of the people and then fulfilled in the Messiah. And Isaiah's call was in chapter 6. After he was cleansed, he's told to go to the people. Uh, And the response that he would receive from them is a pretty significant passage that's quoted a few times in the New Testament. Their ears are dull. This is uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Their ears are dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. uh, Jesus uses this passage to justify his use of parables in Matthew 13. We'll look at that later on. And then Paul cites this again at the end of the book of Acts when he's under house arrest in Rome. And he says that a majority of of the Jewish nation have rejected him. And he quotes this. So he's in a sense saying this is also being fulfilled in his day as much as it was in Isaiah's day. But in chapter 7, we're going to deal with Judah and their really through the the king Ahaz, their distrust in God and joining with Assyria. This may be painfully obvious, but I wanted to quickly touch on the idea of context. So the Bible has historical and cultural context that it's written within. And this would be in the context of ancient Israel. So there's things about the the cultural and historical context that are important to understand when we're studying the Bible. The immediate context would deal with the surrounding verses and chapter, and even maybe the chapter before and after a passage, immediate context, and that's important to read and understand. The remote context, I didn't make these up, but I'm trying to make sure we understand we're kind of using the same language. The remote context would deal with how a passage fits within the book and its themes. And so a lot of times, like when Glenn's preaching, on a passage on Ephesians, he'll start with 
who was the letter written to, what are the main themes, and kind of walk us up to that passage. And so the remote context. And then the biblical or global context, or maybe biblical narrative context, I don't know that it has a good name. That's how a passage fits within the biblical story and viewed through the messianic fulfillment. We'll touch on these later, and so I just wanted to mention those. To talk for a minute about King Ahaz is the king that is in place when we jump into chapter 7. We've mentioned him already there in red, so he was a wicked king. And 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 1 through 10, describe uh, his rule. Um, We're not going to read those for time's sake, but just two things I wanted to touch on about him. Uh, He took the throne when he was 20 years old. And he was a wicked man. He continued in idol worship and promoted that. And he had no faith in God. He sacrificed his own son. Uh, it says it made, made him pass through the fire. And then the chronicler, Second uh, Chronicles 28, notes uh, the Syrian nation under Rezin, who we'll talk about here shortly, attacked Judah And they took 200,000 captives and killed 120,000 in one battle. So this was a battle that took place during Ahaz, kind of leading up to what we're about to get into. So let's read chapter 7, verse 1 through 9. Normally I would call on people to read, but I think I'm just going to read. That way everyone can hear well. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 9. Now it came about and I'm reading from the NASB. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, house of David there is referring to Ahaz and his house, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, which means uh, a remnant shall return, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take care, be calm, and have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on the account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramaliah. Because Aram, with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up a son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim and Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So what in the world is going on here? (laughs) It kind of throws you down in the middle of Isaiah in this situation and there's really not a lot of context given. And so you have to look to 
other sources, the Kings and uh, Chronicles, to kind of get the context. Two sources that I found helpful for this. Um, I won't have a lot of time to go into the historical context, but we'll touch on it, is How to Lose a Kingdom in 400 Years by Michael Whitworth. And it's uh, a book about the, the divided kingdom, how uh, it separated and fell. And I think this is in our library. It's a good source. And then this book, Old Testament Times by Harrison, has a section about the divided kingdom that was helpful for me. So during this time, the Assyrian Empire that you can see up there uh, began there in purple, and it expanded both to the east, southeast, and then to the west. First, it was down toward Babylon and Elam that you can see on the east, and then it expanded westward and south toward Syria and made it about as far um, as Biblos. It didn't get down to Tyre at this point in time, so it was, it was sitting just above Syria there. It would eventually expand on down into that area that we're talking about called the Levant, but, and then down into Egypt. And so bigger picture, that's kind of the empire we're dealing with right now is Assyria. And if you zoom in on this context, we're talking about the southern kingdom there in in yellow and then the northern kingdom in blue. And these two kings, King Rezin, who was king of Syria, which is different than Assyria, so king of Syria, and then Pekah, which was the king of the northern kingdom in Israel. So these two kings are trying to kind of set up a wall so that Assyria can't come down and conquer them. And so they felt that they need to set up this alliance between the two of them. But really, they don't think even that's enough. So they are trying to force Judah to also lie with them and set up these three nations together. And then maybe with these three, we'll stop Assyria. The only problem is King Ahaz is... Um, he's, he's in fear of, of uh, a few things. And he doesn't want to join this alliance so they're trying to, they've tried to invade Jerusalem unsuccessfully, and they are trying to set up a king that'll sympathize with them and not side with Assyria. And uh, so this, Ahaz is faced with this, this confederacy between Syria and Israel, and it's making him and the hearts of the Judeans tremble. So he feared this alliance that's at his doorstep, and also this looming threat of Assyria that's just up north. And he should have feared the Lord. Uh, Isaiah eight thirteen says, It is the Lord of armies whom you are to regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. So he's there at the pool of Siloam. And it seems to be kind of benign information at first. But this was Jerusalem's only water source freshwater source. So Ahaz was there checking the water levels of his city because he knows under a siege you're going to lose your water. And once you do, you know, that's the first step in, in starving the people out. So he's there seeing how long they would be able to hold out under the siege. And his faith is in what he can see. He can see that he can see this water. And um, Whitworth makes a, a pretty keen observation that this same pool, pool of Siloam, is where Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, will face the same decision 
to trust God or uh, to give in to the taunting threats of Assyria. This is later on in Isaiah 36. And so this is a critical time for Ahaz to uh, decide who he's going to place his trust in, who he's going to place his faith in. So Isaiah and his son are deployed by God at this point. And Isaiah's apparently upper class enough that he has easy access to the king to go to him. And he brings the son who is a message to Judah, a remnant shall return. He's told to bring his son. And he tells them, do not fear, it shall not stand. This alliance shall not stand. And what, what you're fearing that they'll overtake you, it won't come to pass. In verse 8, there's a mention here of now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. That, it, that is, it is no longer a people. What uh, historians make of this is that although, as you're probably aware, in 721 BC, the Assyrian army conquered the northern kingdom. They captured Samaria, the capital that was under Sennacherib. Um, And they carried away many Israelites into captivity. But some would remain there in the northern kingdom area. And later in 671 BC, there would be another king that would come in, um, Esarhaddon. I have a lot of strange names tonight, Troy, sorry. And he would carry off the last remnant of the people of Samaria and repopulate the land fully with foreigners. And so Ephraim was really no more a people by this time, 65 years later. So that's what this prophecy is likely referring to. So are there any questions about this so far? kind of getting into the situation here. They're the same. Aram, I should have mentioned that, good point. Aram and Syria are the same, uh, referring to the same nation. And Ephraim in the northern kingdom, Ephraim being a prominent tribe. So Daniel, he was asking about this relative to Daniel. Daniel, I believe, was part of that first wave of exiles, like in 605 B.C., that was taken captive by the Babylonians. The book of Daniel? I honestly don't know about when it was written because it would have been when they were released or when they were brought back. So I don't have, unless somebody else knows offhand about when Daniel was written. But it is, it is in that time frame. It's not um, later, as some would suggest, during the intertestinal period. Anything else about this section? This, this, by the way, this is we're looking at 735 BC is really when this occurred with Ahaz. All right. Let's read verses 10 through 18. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse good and choose evil. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil 
and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So we have here, let's talk about this two-fold sign that, that occurs. This appears to be kind of a new oracle that Ahaz gives, separate from the one we just read about the smoldering stubs um, earlier. And Isaiah calls Ahaz to trust in Jehovah. Um, What he ends up doing is he phones a friend, and so-called friend, and that is Assyria from up north. So he sends messengers there, and Isaiah may have gotten this word uh, from God after Ahaz calls for them. We don't know exactly, but... um, So Ahaz charges excuse me, Isaiah charges Ahaz again to to trust in God. And Ahaz gives this weird false piety kind of thing. You know, I don't want to tempt the Lord. Well, is it really tempting the Lord if God tells you to do something and you don't do it? That's That's not tempting the Lord. You could tempt the Lord if you don't follow through with something he asks you to do. Um, But he's He's, he, he doesn't trust in God. He doesn't have faith in God. He didn't want a sign, but God is apparently going to give him one anyway. And it involves this baby boy whose name is apparently Emmanuel, or, which means God is with us. By the time the baby could tell the difference between good and evil, he would be eating curds and honey. Curds and honey business, from what I read, is these, these are foods that wouldn't require cultivating from the land because the land would be have been devastated by the attack so curds could be uh, brought about by their cattle and honey could be found or, or gotten through figs but before the baby was old enough to tell the difference between good and evil this northern confederacy which Ahaz feared would have been destroyed and their land devastated we see the fulfillment of this um, prophecy. It's not, not here in the text, but what would happen three years later, so we're at 735. So in 732, Rezin, king of Syria, or Aram, would be invaded and killed by Assyria. This is just three years later, so they would push down past Tyre and Assyria and take that capital. Pekah, king of Israel, uh, would be assassinated this same year, 732. So Israel, or excuse me, um, yeah, Israel wouldn't fall at, in three years, but their king would fall. And that's really what verse 9 there talks about, is the kings of these two nations. Um, some of the tribes would actually be taken captive in 731, just a year later, and then finally in 721 B.C., they would be taken. So I threw out a lot of dates there. But this, this prophecy about this boy uh, before he knows good or evil seems to have been fulfilled three years later based on history and what would happen under Assyria. We're going to talk more about this prophecy and what it means here in just, just a second. Um, oh, sorry. Is there any comment on that section so far?
or question. All right, let's talk about this Emmanuel prophecy, uh, what we can piece together and what we know for sure about it. Um, in fact, I'm going to, before we get to this, I'm going to read some from chapter 8 because there's some links back to chapter 7 in chapter 8. So let's read chapter 8. Do I have the... I'll put these verses up there. You can see chapter 8, 1 through 4. And then I'm going to read 7 and 8. And then 10. Chapter 8, uh, verse 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will make myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Mahershalalhashbaz. I'm so sorry, Troy. Which means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. But for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Let's jump to verse 7. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise up over over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. It will even reach to the neck, and spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then finally, verse 10. Devise a plan, it will, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. So I've tried to note here, and I, I know that's actually hard to see, maybe. There's some connections between chapter 7 and 8 in terms of near-term fulfillment of this Emmanuel prophecy. For example, uh, the he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign, talking to Ahaz. And down in chapter 8, verse 18, which we didn't read, sorry. But in 8, verse 18, it says, Behold, this is Isaiah talking, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah says he and his, his sons are for signs and wonders for Israel. It mentions in 7.14, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And then in chapter 8, he he approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. But then he names the son this other name, Mahershal (laughs) al-Hashbaz, not Emmanuel. Um, And then in chapter 7, verse 16, uh, there in green, He says, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And there seems to be a parallel indication here in chapter 8, verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. 
So it, based on the immediate context here, it, it seems like there's a connection to 7 and 8 and this prophecy and how it's fulfilled in Isaiah's day. Uh, in verse 8, he, he even seems to be speaking this prophecy. He says, O Emmanuel. Um, and then in verse 10 of chapter 8, he says, For God is with us. Um, so let's kind of try to make sense of this, maybe. And let me go back. We're given frustratingly little detail about this Emmanuel child and, and how to view this in Isaiah's day. Um, it's confusing, like I mentioned, in chapter 8, the child is named something else, not Emmanuel. And so is this a sign name for a child? Is it something else? Um, what, we, what is clear and what you've already probably picked up on reading this is that Matthew quotes this verse in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, and says that Jesus Christ fulfilled this Emmanuel prophecy in his coming to earth as God among his people, God with us, and being born of a virgin. Um, we'll probably talk in the Matthew section about the word virgin, because I don't think due to time I'm going to talk about that tonight. But So in the biblical context, this, the inspired writers interpreted this prophecy as being fulfilled in Christ. But then in the immediate context, a child is promised to Isaiah's contemporaries as a sign to confirm his prophecy about this alliance um, relative to, to Syria and Ephraim, this threat. And then their fall, that would happen by Babylon. And so the Jews of Isaiah's day weren't thinking necessarily Messiah when they read, when they heard this prophecy. So in, in my view, this is one of a very few instances in the Bible of a double fulfillment or a partial fulfillment that's fully fulfilled in Christ. Um, this, is, this is my view on that at this time. There may be others that, that think, consider this differently. Um, but that a child was born to Isaiah's contemporaries as a sign to what he had just prophesied. And... Um, there's, there's a verse in Luke chapter 24 that I was going to read that kind of helped me maybe make sense of this. Luke 24, verse 44. This is when Jesus is, after his resurrection, when he's with his 11 disciples. Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you that all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand scriptures. It goes on beyond that. So Jesus was sitting with his disciples explaining things different than the rabbis of their day would have understood or would have interpreted possibly something like this from Isaiah. And Jesus is able to tell them things that are more full in their meaning and I think this is what we're getting here. Isaiah was speaking a prophecy, possibly that he didn't even quite understand um, what he was fully speaking. And Matthew tells us this is actually a fulfillment of Christ and uh, his being born of a virgin. And I think Matthew is keying in on this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to earth. He's with us. Uh, we'll look more at that later on in the class. But um, for me, I really hadn't looked into the immediate context of this prophecy, Isaiah 7.14, that a lot of us know until this class. So 
Hopefully it's helpful to consider both of these together like this. Is there any comment or question on this? So I want to draw some of these thoughts together in this section because it's, it's a really neat section. Actually, sorry, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> I want to read chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. I'll just leave it there for now. Chapter 8, 11 through 15. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. Then they will be snared and caught. So verse 12 there, um, where he says, you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Peter actually quotes this verse in 1 Peter 3 verse 14 and 15, and applies it to Christians. He says, if Christians are to suffer for Christ's sake, you're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it, but sanctify your hearts and always be ready to give an answer in meekness and fear. That's pretty interesting. Isaiah says in in verse 13 that God shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. You might have also noticed in verse 14, uh, Romans uh, Paul quotes verse 14 in Romans 9:33, arguing that Israel did not arrive at the righteousness by faith since they pursued it through the law rather than by faith. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he, Paul will actually kind of link Isaiah 28, verse 16, and this verse. Um, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And the one who believes in it will not be disturbed or will not stumble. So now I want to link a few of these ideas together. So we have Isaiah here, back here in chapter 7, and he's in a tight spot. He may not have expecting this decision time to come to him, and yet here he is. He, his faith is being tested. Either you trust in God, trust in Yahweh, or you trust in these external things, these external uh, powers to be that, that you think can help you, in this case is Syria. And in Isaiah 8, verse 6, as I have here, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Siloam, that's the pool that we talked about earlier, gently flowing waters. Um, in the next verse, it says, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates River. So this, these ideas here are kind of contrasted, that because Ahaz didn't trust in the gently flowing waters. That is, Ahaz was looking at what was in front of him, and the waters there at the pool, the water source, was, it was not enough for him. You know, it was too low, it was too gentle. It wasn't supplying them with what he thought they needed. And so Isaiah, uh, he feared, and the fear there is an indication 
that you're trusting in yourself, not God. And his faithless decision brings God's judgment onto the people through Assyria. It says, chapter 7 said, the Lord whistles in the fly. And so Judah and the surrounding nations would face the consequence of his decision. And often sin brings about consequences greater than, than we expect or anticipate. So Ahaz and many of these people that were shaking out of fear, uh, God himself would be a stumbling stone, as it says here. Uh, they would stumble over the stone of Yahweh. And as mentioned, this is applied to Christ in Paul's day, that many would stumble over the Messiah. They wouldn't accept him. And so this brings to mind Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and asks, are you really who you say you are? And in 11 verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the, to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So that is, John, you and your disciples... Um, I may not, you may, you may be doubting who I am. I may not be acting the way that you think I should. And so you may be tempted to stumble over me. Don't do it. He tells uh, John, his disciples, to trust in him, to wait for him. And so Isaiah actually writes in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 8, Behold, uh, sorry, verse 17, Isaiah eight seventeen. Sorry, one more verse, 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. So he's saying, bind up this, this prophecy that I wrote. I know it will come to pass, and future people will see that it will because the seal will be there. And I'm not going to fear Ahaz like, I'm not going to fear like Ahaz and his followers. I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will weather the storm in my life. I will wait for the Lord. Later on in Isaiah chapter 40, I'm not going to read this section, but Isaiah 40 verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Any comments at this point? We're going to move on to chapter 9 that I want to cover, 9 and 10, if we have time here. Chapter 8 ends in kind of a, a, a gloomy way. And basically Isaiah says in the last verse that Behold, distress and darkness um, have come upon the land. And so by bringing, by this decision Ahaz made, Assyria comes in and invades this part of the land. But then chapter 9, as is often with Isaiah, completely um, turns, 
turns on the light um, to when this darkness is going to end. And in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, it says, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land will shine on them. So this is a, a messianic prophecy that's given, and Isaiah just immediately jumps to this, uh, talking about a future time. Matthew picks up on this in Matthew chapter 4, and he quotes verses 1 and 2, talking about uh, when Jesus goes into Naphtali and Zebulun, and how they will be the first ones to receive the light, that is the light of the Lord, of God with us. And it's interesting because, um, I don't think it shows up on the map, but these Naphtali and Zebulun are in the north part of the northern kingdom. So they were the first ones hit by this invasion of Assyria. And Matthew quotes this and says, they're actually going to be the first ones to receive the light of Jesus Christ when he begins his ministry. And that's in Matthew chapter 4, uh, 14 through 16. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so, um, this is another uh, child reference that's given that's clearly a reference to the Messiah and the names that are given to this, um, this king and the government will rest on his shoulders that's described here. And it's not a direct quote, but it made, made me think of Ephesians 3.21 where Paul writes, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And I'm going to quickly touch on chapter, oh, I should have gone on there. <laughs> to chapter 10 is a section that talks about Assyria and how in the hand of God, it's pulling back the curtain to show what's actually taking place here with this Assyrian judgment. It's actually God working through this nation to judge his own people in that region. And they're referred to as a, um, an axe in his hand, a rod of his anger, and um, that they would chop down the trees and kind of the image of just mowing down the trees there at the end of chapter 10 that Assyria would do this to that, that part of the land. Um, and then once Assyria is, has done, excuse me, once God is finished with Assyria playing their part, um, chapter 10, verse 12, the end, midway down, verse 12, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So God will actually turn his judgment then on Assyria. And as you know from history, they'll be, overtaken by Babylonia several hundred years later. Um, and in chapter 10, verse 
20 through 22, this is, a, again, another glimpse of a future day of uh, the kingdom age, the church age. And 10 verse 20 says, Now in, the, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. You know, that's quoted, uh, Matthew, not Matthew, Romans 9. Uh, Romans 9 quotes this as well in reference to the remnant of national Israel that would uh, be faithful to Christ in Paul's day. He says, A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. And so uh, this section, again, ends with this, this crashing of the trees and the forests on this approach of Assyria that took place, tying it really back to chapter 7, this decision that, that King Ahaz made um, that led to this invasion. So I know that was a lot to take in. Sorry it was more lecture than, than questions tonight, but I hope it was helpful to kind of sort through this section of Isaiah. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.